2015, an amazing thing happened in the, prov- in the city of Shenzhen in China, just north of Hong Kong. Um, in fact, Dr. Louis Tang, the chief medical officer, said there was an extraordinary thing that happened that he's never seen in 20 years of his time as a doctor. Xiao Li of Shenzhen had been in a coma for over a year. He had been spending time in an internet cafe for about a week long, and he lost consciousness. Um, This wasn't what was strange, but they could not wake him up. And so his family informed uh, the doctors that the one thing that he loved more than anything else in life was money. So they had an idea. Um, They've got different denominations of bills and and put it towards him. They got a handful of coins and nothing happened until they got a 100 yuan note and waved it under his nose and and he came alive. He woke up. And I'm not sure if that's a a great thing to have that money uh, so uh, ingrained into you that it causes you to come up out of a coma. But I can tell you that Lots of people chase after money. I mean, that's all they do. That's their focus is one more dollar. John D. Rockefeller was once asked how much money. He was considered the, the wealthiest man of all time in America. He, he was asked, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And Rockefeller said, just one more dollar. Just one more and one more. <laughs> it never ends. It's like you're chasing after the almighty dollar. And uh, that's what some people's whole life is about, just to succeed. Uh, They're so driven in their quest for money, they become what we call workaholics. It it consumes them. It takes over their life to the uh, exclusion of almost everything else. Uh, They don't see their kids anymore. Their marriage is on the rocks. Their friendships could take second, uh, play second fiddle in their life. Everything is driven towards getting that almighty dollar. In the New Testament, we meet a character named the Apostle Paul. He starts off as a very driven person. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was chasing after Christians and trying to eradicate churches. But he comes to Christ and everything changes. And now his drivenness, who used to be going towards eradicating Christians, is now driven to plant churches and to disciple Christians. I see that uh, his drivenness sometimes Revealed a few cracks in his armor. Uh, he had one thing on his mind, and uh, everything, uh, it seemed to me, had to do with just accomplishing the goal of, of reaching the Gentiles. But I think also he was trying to make up for lost time. You see, Saul, because he had persecuted the church at the beginning, and he had seen Christians thrown in jail and some stoned to death, I think that Paul had this sense that he had to work even harder. In fact, he says in the, in the scriptures, I work harder than all the rest to try and accomplish what God has called me to do. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. You know that many runners enter a race, but only one of them wins a prize. So run to win. Athletes work hard to win a crown that cannot last, but we do it for a crown that will last forever. I don't run without a goal. I don't box by beating my fists in the air. I keep my body under control and make it my slave so I won't lose out after telling everyone else the good news. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll admit to you, I'm going to be stretching things just a little bit when I talk about Paul to make a point today, because I like Paul, and I like what he has to say, but, but let's read it a slightly different way. I'm going to skew the, 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 uh, the scene just a little bit, because I think Paul clearly accomplished a lot of goals. 
He, he was great in the kingdom of God. He pushed the gospel out from Jerusalem to the known world, discipling uh, believers, planting churches. But I think that there was times when his drivenness got the best of him. Galatians chapter 5, uh, he says, uh, you know, when you're driven, you can be frustrated with other people really quickly because they're not helping you accomplish your goals. They're getting in the way, maybe. They're just kind of uh, frustrating you. Come on, get your act together. Well, he says this in Galatians 5. You were running the race so beautifully. Who cut in and stopped you from obeying the truth? Such influence does not come from the one who calls you. However, the one who is troubling you will suffer God's judgment, whoever he is. And as for me, brothers, if I'm still preaching the necessity of circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He says, I wish that those who are upsetting you would castrate themselves. What? I didn't know that in my pastor's manual you could call for the emasculation of a troublemaker. I'll just have to keep that in mind for future. Paul, he, some other translations say, I wish they would just cut themselves off. Or, or, but the, the, the word is, is like Paul. Like, really? Uh, relax. Well, sometimes he even seems to go beyond, um, beyond what God had told him to put down in, in the Scripture. And he offers his own opinion. Sometimes we're so driven, so task-oriented, such a workaholic that we put ourselves out there as kind of the epitome of what should be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, he starts off by saying, I say, therefore, to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And to the married I command, and he says in brackets, not I, but the Lord. In other words, the Lord commands a woman not to be separated from her husband. But if she is indeed separated, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to leave his wife. And then verse 12, he says, but to the rest, and then he says, I speak, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is pleased to dwell with him, do not let him put her away. The front end of this, this section, he is telling us what the Lord has to say, and then he inserts his own opinion. Uh, now, it doesn't bother me that, church, that Paul, because he planted these churches, was offering his opinion on how they should live their lives and honor Christ, but what he's actually doing is that he's elevating his opinion to the same level as Christ. And so now we have his opinion as scripture uh, in our Bibles. And you know, I, as I say, it's okay. Uh, he planted these churches. He discipled. He mentored. He put leaders and elders in place. He was the man. He was the one who helped the churches become who they were. The danger is when we overstep. And I don't know about you. Sometimes Sometimes, you know, when I'm, I've been a Christian a long time, and um, I've been in lots of Bible studies and life groups and seminars and conferences and, and all that kind of thing, sometimes people will come to me for counseling, and, um, you know, if I'm really busy and I, uh, driven, I can give them my opinion instead of God's opinion. I don't take time to pray and ask God, what do you want them to know? I'm not looking for God's input. I just give them what I think is best. And so, you know, common sense is okay. But we have to be really careful that when, when people come to us, that we share with them what the Bible says, not what we think is right. We can't elevate our opinion to equal what the Scriptures say. Let God, let them, bring them to God and let God help them for what they need to learn from His Word, not what they need to hear from my opinion. 
So um, I let him uh, give his opinion to help the churches, but I think we just need to be careful that we are not so busy we don't have time to consult God to help people out. And sometimes we're so driven and we're working so hard for God that we can be impatient with those who don't seem to be doing much at all. They're just kind of coasting through life. And come on, you know, let's go to the, the church. Let's do this outreach. Let's do this mission thing. And they're going, yeah, I want to watch TV today. First Corinthians 3, Paul, he's frustrated. He says, you're letting me down. He says in, in verse 1, my friends, you are acting like people of this world. That, that's why I could not speak to you as spiritual people. You're like babies as far as your faith in Christ is concerned. So I had to treat you like babies and feed you milk. You hear a little frustration in his voice? You could not take solid food, and you still cannot because you are not yet spiritual. You are jealous, and you argue with each other. It proves that you are not spiritual and that what you are acting like people of this world. He's basically saying, guys, grow up. If there's arguing and jealousy and fighting amongst you and division, it shows that you're not spiritually motivated. God's presence isn't working in you. You're just functioning like everyone else in the world. There's no one, nothing distinguishing you from everyone else around. And it says it should never be that way. He basically says, grow up already. Is what he's saying true? Yes. <laughs> Did the people need to be challenged to grow in their salvation to move beyond acting like babies? Yes. But sometimes the impatience with others it, 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 it shows that we are too driven, we're too focused, we're, we're kind of in that realm of being workaholics. You know, we can be impatient with our kids coming home. You know, we've been working hard all day, we come home, our kids haven't cleaned up their room. Impatience, or with our spouse, impatience. We don't take time to realize that we're to love them. You have coworkers, that driver that cuts you off. How many of you have honked your horns this week? I want to know, I see hands. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. I just normally just shake my head and, and breathe out like, <sighs> yet again. But that's, it says that we're not, we're not at peace, that little things can push us off and over the edge too easily. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about not only was Paul sometimes impatient and uh, harsh, but he had a lot of pride to deal with. Sometimes driven people can really have Pride is a problem and an issue. He, he admits it, actually. He says, God um, recognized I had a problem with pride, so he put something in place to keep me humble. It says it this way. To keep me from being puffed up with pride because of the many wonderful things I saw, I was given a painful physical ailment, which acts as Satan's messenger to beat me up and keep me from being proud. Three times I prayed to the Lord about this and asked him to take it away, but his answer was, my grace is all you need. My power is greatest when you are weak. And he says, I am the most happy then to be proud of my weakness in order to feel the protection of Christ's power over me. I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, if you want to, <laughs> I'm going to twist this a little bit and, 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 and read it a little differently because sometimes, even in his, so he's trying to tell us that he, he had a problem with pride and God gave him something to keep him humble uh, and his weaknesses. It's almost like he's saying, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. It's like, even in my weakness, I can be strong. Look at me. And uh, that's not what he's saying. But sometimes, you know, people, they're not, 
They, they tend to, to, to put so much focus on what they're doing and who they are and how they've succeeded that we don't see, we don't see them as struggling. We don't see them as having doubts. We see them as perfect. And who can live up to them? And Paul puts himself up on a bit of a pedestal. Let me ask you, uh, those of you who have been around for a long time, maybe long in the tooth, um, the older you get, do you get more patient with people or do you get more impatient with those who should know better? I don't know. Sometimes I see some people smiling out there. Um, you know, you should know better. How many times do I have to tell you? Like, we've gone over this time and time again. Uh, sometimes the impatience, it, 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 it just seeps out. And, uh, and we're not more gentle. and more. You think the longer Christians live with Jesus in them, and the Holy Spirit's working in them, the more like Christ they're going to be. They don't have to be angry all the time. They don't have to be impatient all the time. They, they can be joyful and, and grateful and loving and gentle like Jesus but some, I don't know. Sometimes we're just too driven and too, too uh, trying to please God so much. But Paul says, well, I'll just say, I was leading a conference. I will admit it. This is my confession time, leading a conference. And I was in between sessions. I was a little bit stressed. It wasn't going like I was hoping it would. And the fellow said, hey, Pastor Tom, can I, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. Come over and, and, and we'll chat. So he we started talking and, and talking and talking, and I finally interrupted him, and I said, uh, you actually have a question, or do you just like to hear yourself talk? I'm not sure that that was the kind thing to say. It wasn't the gentle, loving thing to say, but, you know, when you're busy, you're stressed, you've got things to do, people don't become so important. The job is more important. The task is more important. Getting the work done is more important, but people, people are what we're all about. Philippians 1.21, Paul is saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, yet I don't live. Christ lives in me in the life I live here on earth. I live by faith towards the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself on my behalf. In Philippians 4.13, who can quote Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul, you know, I love these verses. They're very um, encouraging to us. But sometimes it looks like Paul is, he's perfect. Christ lived through him. He could do all things through Christ. Nothing gets him down. But the truth was, that's not quite accurate. Sometimes he got lonely. Sometimes he got a bit depressed. He got discouraged. He got frustrated like everyone else. I remember my dad once saying, I take my problems to God and my victories to the people. I said, well, that sounds cool, but how do you ever help the people go through their problems if they never see you having any problems? We all struggle. Other Christians run the race as if everything depends on them. They forget that we're part of a kingdom working together. The Christian life is not me running the race to finish and you running the race to finish and you running, we're, it's a relay team. We're running the race. We're handing the baton off to the next person. And they get to run the next, the next leg of the race. And they hand the baton. You know, there's thousands of generations of Christians that have come before us. And they pass the baton on to us. And we take that baton carefully. And we, we run the race the best we can. And we, we know it's not all us. It's all, all of us. And we're going to hand that baton off to the next generation who will carry it faithfully. 
So what do you think God believes about our drivenness or our workaholism? And this is where I'm, I'm getting to. In Hebrews chapter 4, it's a great, great chapter to read. He says this, There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, because the ones who enter God's rest has himself rested from his own actions, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fail by following their example of disobedience. He's talking about the children of Israel who didn't trust God. They were going to enter a rest from all their travels through the wilderness. But they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't trust. And they didn't get to enter into that rest. This rest is not talking about coming home from work, throwing your purse in the corner and putting your feet up and grabbing a, an iced tea and watching a little bit of news or something. It's not talking about uh, you know, f- fixing the fence in the backyard and hanging the hammer up and, and sitting down and getting, uh, uh, putting your feet up. It, the, this kind of rest is not a physical rest. It's the kind of rest that God's talking about when he created the heavens and the earth. And then he rested on the seventh day. Like, that's big work. It's the kind of rest when, when God took his people through, through the wilderness across the Jordan into the promised land. It's like we could finally rest. It's like it's soul rest where the big things have been done. And, and what we realize when we look at the scriptures is that we're, we're enter into, entering into his rest. In other words, Christ has done the big work. He's done the work on the cross. He's defeated sin and, and, and hell and Satan. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, seated at the right hand of God. He's not still working it out. He's done. On the cross, he said what? It's finished. Done it. I've completed everything God asked me to do. So we we still have work, we still have kids to raise, we still have a job to go to. We have still got to change the oil in the car. There's work to be done. But our soul can rest in Jesus. In fact, the kingdom of God was called the perpetual Sabbath. In other words, when he finished and sat down, we're entering into a time of soul rest, that the hard work has been done by Jesus. And then he gives us our jobs to do, our tasks to do, our assignments to do while we're still here on earth to continue building up his kingdom. But the salvation of the world does not depend on us. <laughs> the growth of the church doesn't depend on us. The reaching the community doesn't depend on us. That's his job. And he allows us to join him in what he's doing. He says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke on me. Sorry, take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is pleasant and my burden is light. It doesn't sound like a workaholic-driven person to me. We get to, we get to do our work alongside of Jesus. <laughs> we get to pull alongside of Jesus who's, who's helping us to do amazing things, eternal things. When we're rested... We are spiritually and physically and emotionally, or sorry, when we are not rested, we, we are spiritually and physically and emotionally tired. And it's hard to fight against temptation when we're weak and when we're tired and we, we don't have the strength to resist. It's easier to dwell in negative and unproductive and unfounded thoughts when we are not rested. It's easier to fall into depression and anxiety and paranoia and overreacting to people when we're not rested. Something interesting happened to the Apostle Paul. See, God was watching, and he appreciated all that Paul was doing and and the churches that were planted and the people he discipled and the elders he put in place. But listen to the timeline of Paul's life. 
AD 51, he was imprisoned in Philippi. AD 52, he was spent six months in Corinth. He had some time to rest, to think, to work, to teach. AD 54, he spent two years in Ephesus. Time to just stop. Time to just focus on building the one church amongst the Ephesians. And then in AD 58, he was arrested and imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. So this driven, workaholic, <laughs> workaholic church planter was sitting for two years. That must have drove him nuts. AD 61, he was again arrested in Rome for two more years. AD 67, he was arrested and sent to Rome where he was executed eventually by Nero. What God did is he put pauses in Paul's life. He forced him to rest, forced him to take time to reflect, forced him to, to, to stop and just evaluate and, and grow deeper in his relationship with God. So what happens when you, you're, you're driven, a driven person is forced to rest? Well, he wrote letters. He wrote letters to churches and to friends to try and encourage them. He wrote the book of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. Then they're called the prison letters or the prison epistles. And they're reflecting a pastor's heart. So when you look at the book of Colossians, he was writing to, to strengthen the church. They were a threat of heresy, um, and he needed to correct them. To the Ephesians, um, he was encouraging. They were dividing. They were whining and complaining and arguing. He says, get along with one another. It's too important for you to be unified, to, to let all this out stuff get in, 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 interfere with that unity. Maintain church unity and keep Christ's body, the church, pure and holy. To the Philippians, it's a letter of joy. Let me just, just want to encourage you. The whole book of Philippians is full of joy. You want to be encouraged? Check out Philippians. And then he writes a letter to his friend Philemon who had a slave who'd run away and then met Paul in Rome while he was incarcerated, <laughs> became a Christian. And Paul wanted to send him back to to Philemon to say, don't bring him back as a slave. Bring him back as now as a brother in Christ. Forgive. In fact, he goes so far as to say, if he owes you anything, put it on my account. By the way, I led you to Christ. You owe me. And uh, it's, it's, an, it's a fun letter to read. It gets to the point of Paul, uh, the heart of Paul. So his letters of encouragement while in prison become our books of the Bible that we get to enjoy. Some of his letters while he was in prison are the favorite books of God's people. And beyond that, when he was jailed in the city of Rome, something amazing happened. Just think about it. He's supposed to be planting churches. He's supposed to be growing and encouraging the churches. Three missionary journeys, travels he did to try and plant churches. Now he's in Rome. He's stuck. House arrest. But God takes him and gives him a considerable amount of influence. It's actually staggering. In Philippians 1.13, he says that his influence um, permeated the, the Praetorian Guard. So the Praetorian Guard was a body of 10,000 specially selected soldiers in Rome. In fact, they were so fearsome and so influential that all of the emperors uh, courted them and courted their favor because they needed the Praetorian Guard to support them if they were going to become the next emperor or Caesar. And then it says, uh, not only was the Praetorian Guard uh, impacted by Paul, but it says all the rest. I'm going, okay, does that mean the whole army? And, th and then it goes on to say that uh, 
that uh, there's a reference to uh, uh, the saints in Caesar's household. Philippians 4.22. Those in and around the emperor's palace were influenced by Paul because he was arrested. God did that. He took, took a guy that was driven, that was traipsing around the, the middle, uh, the, the, the Asia Minor of the known world at the time, planting churches, encouraging churches, and just stops him in his tracks, gives him time to think, to process, to encourage, to write, and to get to know his Lord. It's like Paul, God saying, you need to rest. You need to settle down a little bit. You need to just take it, take it easy. You know, you've worked hard. You've, you've been in shipwrecks. You've been floating in the sea for three days. You've been, you know, brutally beaten in Philippi, you, you know. Just, just take rest. Enjoy my rest. Come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we say, but God, how can I stop now? I've got so much to do. I've got to, I've got to please you and grow the church and manage my family and work on my marriage and pay my attention to my kids and respond to my critics and cast the vision. And, and he says, come to me. I will give you rest. I'll care for you. Be still, he says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Not you. (laughs) I will be exalted above the earth. Not you. It's about me. Rest in me. When we're rested, we can be more focused on our goals, be more focused on helping others instead of protecting ourselves. When we're rested, our hopes and dreams and visions can come to be a lot more clear. We know what we're about, what our main thing is, what our purpose is. When we're rested, um, we don't run ourselves ragged all the time, trying to push everything through. I think when we're, we're trying to f- do so many things, trying to get so much done, we can't focus on anything. Remember Jesus talking to the seven churches in the book of Revelation? Every time he talks to a church, he evaluates, gives them kind of a report card on how they're doing. And then he says, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches every single time. When we're rested, our spiritual ears are open to hearing what the Spirit is saying. When we're, when we're running around driven, trying to get everything done, we're not listening for God. We're just trying to get the job done, trying to get ahead, trying to, to take care of things, but we're not hearing from the Spirit. In Exodus 33, he says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Talking to the children of Israel. Psalm 91 Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Jeremiah 6.16, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths and ask where the good way is. Walk in it that you will find rest for your souls. He knows what it takes for us to rest for our souls. That's deep down. That's at the core of who we are. Mark 6.31 Because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. Get some rest. Jesus tells his disciples, just just rest. Be at peace. Anne Graham Lotz, the daughter of famous evangelist Billy Graham, was once asked, how do you maintain a balanced life? And she said, oh, balanced people never accomplish anything. Her point was, you know, life, you don't go for balance in life. You go for obedience in life. Try not to get everything equal, equal playing. You, you do what God asks you to do at that time, and you do that. And sometimes it takes all of your focus and all of your energy. But then you can relax, and you can rest, 
focus on some other things. You, you, you focus on this for a while, he says to you, and then you, you, can, you can manage the other things. But you're not going to have a balanced life. Don't aim for balance. Aim for priorities. Aim for obedience. And God will give you rest and take care of your life and all your responsibilities. So let me just end with this. In the movie uh, City Slickers, how many of you have seen that movie? I know it's old. It dates me a bit. But there's one character called uh, Curly, and he's an old, weather-beaten cowboy. And he turns to the city slicker, Mitch, um, and he says, Mitch, do you know what the secret of life is? Mitch says, no. What is it? Curly holds up his finger, and Mitch says, your finger? I says, no. He says, the secret of life is one thing. And Mitch says, um, what's that one thing? And Curly says, that's what you have to find out. You stick to that, and everything else don't mean, and I can't say the last word because it's not in my vocabulary. Moses' one thing was what? To lead the people of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. Noah's one thing was to build an ark, save the animals. He was in that ark for a year. Paul's one thing was to spread the gospel among the Gentiles. Jesus' one thing was to head to the cross and provide salvation for a world that was going to hell. Mary's one thing was to be the mother of Jesus. Jeremiah's one thing was to faithfully speak the words of God to his people. And my dad's one thing was to write a book called Experiencing God. And that's gone around the world in more than 50 languages impacting people's lives. Maybe our drivenness comes from trying to do lots of things. And it's preventing us from focusing on that one thing that God may have put on our hearts to do, that one thing that we have a passion for. And we have never get, not getting around to that one thing because we're so busy with everything else. Sometimes I think that that one thing can change or can morph like God is saying, focus on this, do this one thing well, and then I'll, then I'll let you do, do this one thing well. And there's lots of things we can accomplish, but are we keeping the main thing, that one thing God has called us to do, out in front. Some of you may not really know what that one thing is yet. You may not, not really know what God has called you to, to, to invest your life and your resources and your time and your talents in. Paul, driven Paul, learned how to have times of rest with his Lord. When he slowed down, when he had time to reflect and to think and to pray, then he accomplished some of the most important stuff in his life. Brothers, he says in Philippians 3, 13, <clears throat> I do not consider that I have made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead, and I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think that that's God's message to our church today. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. We press on. We press on. We, we, we spend time with our Lord to say, let me hear what you are saying to your church. Let me hear what you want me to know. Let me hear what you want me to do, what my role is, what my part to play is in, in, in your story for MRAC in the next 10 years. I want to make a difference, an eternal difference. I don't want to be worn out and wonder where did all my life go. I want to invest and do something. I want to, I want to make a difference in people's lives. Remember, it's not about getting the job done. It's about people. It's a lesson I learn over and over and over because I am very task-oriented. And God says, Tom, it's about people. 
Focus. <laughs> That's why you're here. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. A reminder that um, we're, you're not too impressed with drivenness. You're not too impressed with workaholics. You're impressed with people who are obedient. You never ask us to do more than we are able. You, you always provide that Sabbath time. In fact, you command us to have Sabbath rest, to relax in you, to enjoy your peace that you, you offer. In your books, when you say the end of time comes and we stand before you and we give an account of our life, some of you will look and say, I, I never knew you. You were so busy. You did everything else. You never allowed me to be a part of your life. And to others, he will say, well done. Good and faithful servants, enter into my rest. Be so great, Father, to have that kind of rest. But right now, Father, let our souls be at peace. Let our souls experience that Sabbath rest that only you can give. Let us, Father, enjoy what it is you have for us to do and do it with all of our heart, realizing that it's not up to us, it's up to you. Bless this church, Father, as we seek you, as we listen for you, as we turn our ears towards you to hear what you have to say to our church, that we would be a blessing to our community and to one another. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.